Open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. Last week I started on a journey along the road to Calvary. We started in the upper room and we followed our Lord into the Garden of Gethsemane where He prayed, where He uh, was arrested. And today I want to take you from the, from the court to the cross. And before I review the story, I want to read sort of the conclusion as far as this message is concerned. We'll pick it up in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 27, just two verses for now. And here we find Christ before Pilate. His wife has just warned him that she's had a dream and to have nothing to do with this man. And Verse 22, Pilate saith unto them, those that have just chosen Barabbas rather than Jesus, Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? And they all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why, what evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. In this part of our journey, there are three things I want you to consider this morning. That is, as we go back and review in John chapter 18, I want you to think about his arrest and then his arraignment and then the atrocity as we think about the cross. John chapter 18 is where we left off last week. I'm not going to read verses, but... You might want to follow along. You'll remember that Jesus has conversed there with his followers in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's poured out his heart in prayer. When Judas led by, uh, leads a band of men, soldiers into the garden and after betraying our Lord with a kiss, what happened was amazing because in verse number four, Jesus said, whom seek ye? And their answer revealed their attitude. Instead of saying Christ, that is the anointed one, the Messiah, they said Jesus of Nazareth, being that city out of which they said nothing good could come. And the Lord answered in verse number 6, I am, and they went backward and fell to the ground. You see, they had come to arrest him, and suddenly they find themselves at his mercy. And that demonstration of power was simply to show that he was in full control of that situation. And then, notice in verse 7, he repeats his question, Womb seek ye? And they gave the same answer, which indicates they had not changed their mind. Verse number 10, Peter decides this is getting out of hand, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And so with the sword, he cuts off one of the ears of one of the men. And uh, and a lot of people always think about Peter as being a coward in that he, you know, betrayed the Lord and uh, 
so forth, but you've got to give him, I think, maybe a little credit. He had more brawn than brains, and he grabbed the sword, whacks that guy's ear off with it. He wasn't even a good soldier. He's trying to cut his head off, I suppose, and missed and cut his ear off, and so now he's created a mess, and it just so happened Jesus was there, and it says that he touched his ear and healed him. Well, I'm glad that the Lord has a way of fixing the messes that we make. Amen. And that being done, Jesus submitted himself into their hands and they led him away. Don't forget that. He's just demonstrated his mighty power. He could have called down 10,000 angels and destroyed all of those men, but rather he yields himself into their, into their hands. He is now officially arrested illegally. Illegally. Keep in mind that these same people bringing false charges against our Lord were breaking one law after another. This was just the first of many that was to follow. He was arrested at night. That was against the law in that day. He was arrested without any accusers or without any evidence of guilt whatsoever. Not only that, but then the trial took place on a feast day. He was beaten without a cause. All of those things illegal. And now having been arrested, he is arraigned, and by that I mean he begins the, the, the trial proceedings. There's actually six trials. Three of them are religious, in, of religious nature, and the other three are of a civil nature. And you'll see why in just a little bit. And here in John 18, we find, beginning in verse number 13, where the Lord is brought before Annas, and this was an ex-high priest of the Jews. And evidently, he's still regarded as a very influential man among the Jews and, you know, uh, and, and still no real regard for the law. But uh, before even taking him before the proper authorities, they take him to, to this guy because, you know, behind the scenes, you know, he's kind of running the show, whether, you know, whether people thought so or not. He's the one they looked up to because the high priest was Caiaphas, which happened to be his son-in-law. You see, you even have politics and religion, and that's the way it was back then. So he goes before the official high priest in verse number 24, and here before Caiaphas, he's charged with blasphemy. Now, remember, he had claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and although all of the facts prove that that's true, these men were not looking for facts. They were looking for a way to get rid of him. And so Caiaphas then decides the next step in this procedure is to take him before the Sanhedrin. This is the, the 70 Jewish elders. I mean, this is the ultimate authority among the Jews. And so... He goes before the Sanhedrin and he is judged as guilty of blasphemy against God. And uh, no further witnesses are needed. He's guilty, condemned. And, uh, and they realize the only problem we have with this is that although we have judged him guilty, we are under the authority of the Roman government. 
And the government, although they allowed the Jews to basically conduct their own affairs when it was of a religious nature, they could not, they could not uh, intrude on civil affairs. And they understand that they've got to get the permission of the Roman authorities. So with that in mind, they take our Lord to Pilate, who's the governor of Judea. They take him there, and uh, they know the charge of blasphemy. That does not carry any weight before him because, you know, the Romans didn't care anything about that. I mean, they didn't care anything about the God of the Jews. And so they realize that we've got to level some charges against him that's going to stick in court to where we can have the court to condemn him, that we can crucify him. So they charged him with insurrection. Uh, that is being a traitor, as it were, against the Roman authorities. Uh, he claimed to be a king, and, and, and so he, he's going to try to overthrow the throne, and he's going to try to take over the kingdom. Well, now they've got something that causes Pilate to perk up and take notice, because he understands that as a, as a civil matter that he is responsible for what goes on. And so he begins to question him. We're not going to go into all of the details. I'm sure most of you are familiar with, with what transpired at that time. And so in his effort to try to find something against the Lord, he continues to examine him. And finally, he comes to the conclusion, he says, I find no fault in this man. Well, you know, if you're going to be honest about any examination of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's always the conclusion you've got to come to. I find no fault with this man. There's absolutely no justification for these charges. He is no threat to anyone. But the Jews are outraged at this. And... uh, They continue to insist that he's guilty, he must be crucified. So Pilate, being the politician he was, he decides that, you know, I've got to to figure out a way to get out of this. So over in Luke 23, and unless you just want to turn there, we're not going to read all of the account. But in Luke 23, beginning in verse number 8, we find here that Pilate sends him before Herod. And he's the governor of Galilee. And... uh, he was from 4 B.C. up until about 39 A.D. And if you've ever studied anything about the Herod family, you know that these were the most wicked, vile people imaginable. They wouldn't stop at anything to get what they wanted. These, this is the same man that, you know, that had John the Baptist beheaded. Now, when he gets before Herod, Herod is sort of interested because he's been He's been hearing all of these reports about a man called Jesus and the miracles that he's been working. And Herod's been wanting to meet him. Herod, uh, Herod wants to see one of these miracles. And so he welcomed this opportunity. And in fact, it says in verse number 8 that he was hoping to see some miracle done by him. But he quickly discovered our Lord wasn't in the entertainment business. 
Our Lord wasn't going to cater to his whims. Our Lord wasn't going to do something to just demonstrate the greatness of his power. And so Herod decided to mock him. He put a robe on him, mocked him, sent him back to Pilate. Sounds like government, right? I mean, man, oh man, you just can't get anything done. But Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 13, he's back before Pilate now. And uh, Pilate has failed in getting rid of this problem. It's what it is in his mind. So he begins to think about a custom that uh, the Jews had this custom that, you know, that allowed a criminal on the Passover, uh, some criminal could be released. And uh, so he decided, you know, this would be the way to get him off and I can get, you know, I can get rid of all of this problem. I haven't found any fault in him. There's no sufficient charges against, no credible witnesses to condemn him. And so I'll use this this Jewish tradition of releasing a criminal. And so and he thinks he's off the hook now. So he says, you know, which one of these would you that I release? Barabbas? Remember, he's a thief and a murderer. Yeah, it's kind of like he dipped down at the bottom of the scum bucket and picked out the very worst guy they've got in prison says, uh, Okay, the tradition says that I've got to let somebody loose today and give them their freedom. How, how about Barabbas or, 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 or Jesus? Take your pick. One of those two. I don't find any fault with him, but he, boy, he's a, he's a thief and a murderer. Which one? And he's already got his mind made up. He, he almost knows in his heart they're, they're going to take his bad guy. And they said, give us Barabbas. He said, what do you want me to do with this, this man? And they said, crucify him. Crucify him. You know, it's amazing, and I mentioned earlier, and I did so for a reason, that there in verse 19 of Matthew 27 that Herod's wife had warned him. She said, I suffered many things this night in a dream because of him. I don't know whether that was true or not. I don't have any reason not to believe her, but, you know, I'm not going to give her a lot of credit for the statement that she made. She might have had indigestion, went to bed and had some crazy dream. I don't know. But I know one thing, that he had received a warning from his wife and he refused to listen. Let me tell you, regardless of where the warning comes from, when it's credible, when it's scriptural, you better listen. Whether it comes from your wife or your husband or your preacher or your Sunday school teacher or your mom, your dad, whoever it is. She's simply saying to her husband, you better leave this this man alone. You better... You better just get out of this deal. And he says, what shall I do then with with Jesus, which is called Christ? And notice, they said in Luke 23, 25, that he delivered Jesus to their will. He delivered Jesus to their will. Now, he has washed his hands 
This is a demonstration of the fact that you know, I'm not going to be responsible for what you do with him. I'll get out of this by just washing my hands. You know, this is a public proclamation that, that I'm not guilty of the blood that's about to be shed. Let me tell you, for one thing, you don't wash your hands of this matter as easy as that. God doesn't let you off the hook. But the question is, what will you do with Jesus? After the service last week, someone, when we went out, commented about the fact that in the message it was so plain, so simple. I mean, in fact, it's stuff that we all already knew, right? I I don't think anybody learned anything last week they hadn't heard before. And really, I, I don't think anybody's heard anything this morning that you haven't heard before. All of this information is stuff that we're familiar with. But the comment last week was how important it is that we keep hearing this over and over and over again. And that is also true, and that encouraged my heart to realize that there are some people that some that there are some people that understand how important it is. To just keep preaching the plain, simple gospel, even to those that have heard it over and over and over again. Look, if you reach the place in your life that preaching like this is a bore to you, if it's just old hat, something you can take or leave, you'd rather hear something exciting, something about prophecy, Something about the mark of the beast and who the two witnesses are, or, you know, where Cain got his wife, or, you know, something else. If all of that excites you more than this and moves your heart more than this, it's a good indication you either need to get saved or you need to get right, one of the two. That's why Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as important as all this is, and when I say this, I'm talking about all of the things related to Christ. I'm talking about His birth, His life. His death, His resurrection, as important as all of that is, as it's laid out in the four Gospels, even if you could quote every verse of all four Gospels, I doubt we got anybody here that can do that. I sure can't. But even if you could quote every verse, it still wouldn't get you into heaven. Because it all gets back to this one simple question, what will you do with Jesus? That is the most important question you'll ever hear because everything depends on that. You see, our answer to that question determines our destiny. And there's only two options. You can either receive Him or you can reject Him. But there's no middle ground. Not a matter of saying, you know, I'll wait till some other time, and I, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to reject him outright. But I, I need to think about this, and some other time, maybe later on in life, after I've sold my wild oats, after I've done my thing, after I've had my fling and enjoyed my life, and someday, I, you know, I, I want to go to heaven and see Grandpa. Someday, I'm going to become a Christian. 
You, you know what you're going to do? You're, you're going to walk out that door having rejected him. Because I want you to understand that you, in, in rejecting him, you are just as guilty as those that cried for his crucifixion. Just as guilty as those who drove the nails in his hands and feet. Just as guilty as the Roman soldier who took the spear and pierced his side. You are just as guilty as those that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And his blood is on your hands. If you reject him, there is no forgiveness of sin. Wow. Wow. I mentioned in a little thing I wrote the other day about our 56th wedding anniversary and how the first six years of our marriage was, I'm sure, like a nightmare to Bev. I don't know how to describe it for me because it was, I don't even know how to describe it. I was just a man out of control, a nut job. Uh but I know it was a nightmare for her. And, and, and I think back to those, those first six years of our marriage. I think back to the person that I used to be. And I, 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 I just don't know how I could live with the shame and the guilt of the sins that I've committed and the wrongs that I've done. And to think about living, I, I, would, I don't even know that I'd want to live. To think about living without being forgiven. And, and listen, when you reject Jesus Christ, that's where you are. There is no forgiveness of your sins. In fact, the Bible says that you are condemned already. It's not that someday you're going to be condemned, but you are condemned already. As old Jonathan Edwards said in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, it's like, you know, like you're swinging over the gaping jaws of hell on a spider web that could break just at any second. That's where you are this morning. But there's forgiveness for those who receive Him. If you don't receive Him, there's no relationship with God. Wouldn't it be awful to not be able to call God your Father? If you reject Him, there's no hope of heaven. There's no chance of you ever being reunited with your loved ones that have gone on. No way for you to ever break free from the bondage of sin that you're living in. There will be no peace. There will be no joy. None of those things that make living a delight. If you reject Him, there will be nowhere else to turn for help. And if you reject Him, there might not ever be another opportunity to receive Him. You'll be making the biggest mistake of your life. So the question is, what will you do with Jesus? You receive Him, there is forgiveness of sin. You'll be removed from the condemnation. What a wonderful thing that is. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ. Romans 5.1 You'll be reconciled to God. 
You know, it would be one thing for God to say, all right, I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to withhold the condemnation against you, but I'm going to hold you at arm's length for the rest of eternity. I just, you know, I'm not going to send you to hell, but I really don't want anything to do with you. You're not my kind of a person. When Jesus died, he made it possible for us to be reconciled. That means to bring two parties into a state of, uh, of, of agreement and peace. You talk about a peace accord, this is the ultimate. He enables us to be reconciled to God. He enables us to be accepted by God. Rejection's a horrible thing to be able to think about, you know, being rejected by society and nobody wants anything to do with you, but worse than that is to think about being rejected by God. And yet... When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are accepted by the Lord. Not only that, when you receive Him, He puts His Spirit within you. And because of that, a transformation of your life begins. I was talking about what I used to be, and I remember about that time, Doug Oldham come out with a song that says, I'm not the man that I used to be. A little boy run and hid behind the door. And I said, son, you don't have anything to be afraid of. You've got a brand new daddy now. And every time he would sing that, I'd think about Kathy crying as I walked out of that house on Chestnut and walked out going out on another drunk and she knew that daddy might not be home for a day or two or whatever but I never forgot those tears and I'm so glad the time came that I could look my daughters and my wife in the eye and say I'm not the man that I used to be I'm sure not perfect but I'm not what I used to be And it's not, listen, it's not due to me. I didn't change anything. God, through His Spirit, began to change my life. If you receive Him, He'll do the same thing for you. And if you receive Him, He'll reserve a place for you in heaven. So, so, the question is, what will you do with Jesus? Will you accept him or will you reject him? And if if you have accepted him, if you've received him as your Lord and your Savior, you ought to follow him now as the Lord of your life and do whatever he commands. What will you do with this man? Call Jesus. Let's stand together. Father, how we thank you for your saving grace. How we thank you, Heavenly Father, for, for your mighty power that changes us from what we used to be and makes us who we are. We know, as Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And even Paul knew that he was far from perfect and But, Lord, we're so thankful that you've made such a difference in our lives. And I just pray that you'll speak to hearts today. And, Lord, I'm convinced in my heart that you've never put a message on a preacher's heart but what somebody needed it. And, Lord, 
there's someone here today that's pondering the question, what am I going to do with Jesus? Lord, I just pray that your spirit might walk up and down these aisles and move in their hearts. Draw them, draw them to the cross. They might see their need and trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of their soul. For we ask it all in Jesus' precious name.